Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. America can't decouple from China. My Chinese friend told me the other day that would be like the sun decoupling from the moon. His point was that the two nations are locked in a symbiotic relationship, which benefits them both. So it's therefore futile to try to break the connection. However, there are signs that a decoupling process is underway, at least in some areas. For example, trade figures show a significant decline in the amount of goods the U.S. is importing from China. What do these numbers reveal about politics and economics, and which countries benefit from the friction between the U.S. and China? Well, I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast today an expert who devotes a great deal of time to studying how China interacts with the rest of the world through trade. Thomas Gatley is China strategist at Gavacol Dragonomics, and he joins me on the line from Portland, Oregon. Thomas, welcome to China in Context. Thank you very much, Duncan. Glad to be here. So, what do you make of my friend's assertion that the U.S. and China? Are like the celestial spheres of the sun and the moon, destined to move in eternal harmony. I think eternal harmony is perhaps a little bit of a stretch,、um, but there is certainly something to the notion. I think that the U.S. and China are simply too big and important not to engage with one another.、Um, not least because for the foreseeable future, the U.S. is likely to remain the, the largest single source of global demand, and China is the largest source of global supply. Um, but more than that, these are the two countries at the vanguard of technological and entrepreneurial development. They both have a lot of fingers in a lot of pies with regard to global security.、Uh, there's basically no way that the U.S. and China are not going to have to interact, engage, and compete on nearly every front for decades to come. Well, in terms of the decoupling trend, the figures are striking. We're recording this podcast in late October 2023, and the official data from America. Shows that China now accounts for just 14% of the goods imported into the U.S. Now that's down from a pre-trade war high of around 22%. 22% down to 14%. That sounds like a sharp drop to me.、Um, yes, absolutely. The headline drop of eight percentage points or so is is massive、uh, for sure. But there are,、uh, unfortunately, as with a lot of trade data,、uh, a couple of major data caveats、uh, going on here. The first is that historically, the the numbers on the amount of goods that China has exported to the U.S. from the Chinese side、uh, have been quite different to the amount from the U.S. side of the amount of Chinese goods being accepted.、Um, there has been historically the major reason for that was that in China,、uh, companies were getting charged VAT on their exports and they were not getting. All of that back in rebates, and so consequently they had an incentive to underinvoice their exports, and so the Chinese side was smaller than than what was recognised at the US end.、Uh, there was a a raft of VAT reforms in China in 2019, I think,、uh, that basically closed that gap. Whilst at the same time, the、uh, US tariffs under the trade war suddenly created a whole bunch of incentives for US importers to underinvoice their imports, and so you got this flipping,、um, so that now. Uh, Chinese export to the U.S. as recorded are significantly higher,、um, having been previously significantly lower, and so consequently that creates quite significant distortion in this、uh, share of U.S. imports number of probably about three percentage points of that of that drop is is explained by that. Secondly,、um, one of the other things that we've seen as a consequence of, of trade war tariffs, this kind of 
triangular arbitrage essentially has been that a lot of the major beneficiaries, most notably Vietnam, of US tariffs and you know big increase in their exports to the US are probably some kind of triangular Chinese goods flows, basically. So you saw both the share, the Vietnamese share of US imports rise very significantly, but also Chinese exports to Vietnam have risen very significantly. And so you have this kind of triangularization of flows. That probably accounts for another two, two and a half percentage points. So that, there has been a drop, certainly, in this, this share of imports, as you would expect, given the you know large amounts of tariffs on Chinese goods, but it is not, um, it's not a full eight percentage points by any means. Well, I'm glad that you and other experts are there to look closely at the numbers, because I think journalists and, and, and the general readers of the newspapers might get caught out by them. Look, I, I accept from what you say that the fall in imports from China to the United States may not be as sharp as the numbers suggest. And I want to talk to you more about Vietnam in a moment, by the way. But, you know, nevertheless, the American economy has been doing well this year. And generally speaking, in such circumstances, you would expect that to attract more imports, not less. So I can imagine that some people on the Chinese side feel frustrated that they can't take advantage of the US boom. Yeah, that's a great point. So US economy has been growing strongly. Uh, quarterly nominal GDP growth is running at about 6%, which is certainly strong. Um, the question here is the composition of growth. Right. So uh, within that... Uh, household consumption of services is up about seven and a half percent. Household consumption of goods is way down there at about 2.2. So even though the US economy is growing strongly, it's not a kind of strongly goods-driven expansion. Uh, the same is true of um, private sector uh, CapEx investment. Um, that's running at around 1% in nominal terms. So much, much slower than GDP growth as a whole. And as a consequence, um, US imports of goods in nominal terms are down 9% year on year. And it, this is all essentially the kind of the flip side or the hangover of what was happening precisely in the inverse two years ago. So in very late 2020, and then it's 2021, a large amount of US growth is being driven by consumption of goods and specifically imported goods. Um, and now, and whereas you know people couldn't go out and, and consume as many services, and now we're in the the inverse in environment, which is you know, strongest US growth, but not particularly goods or import intensive. Oh, I see. So perhaps rather than importing uh, deck chairs to sit in their backyards from China, uh, they might be spending their money out at restaurants or Taylor Swift tickets. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, look, let's spend some time talking about Southeast Asia, because you mentioned this earlier. And um, there are several countries, actually, in particular, which seem to be benefiting as a result of the trade war between China and America. You mentioned Vietnam. There's also Thailand and Cambodia. Can you tell us more about what's going on there? Sure. Um, there are likely a number of things going on at once. Um, Chinese firms have invested quite heavily, uh, particularly in Vietnam. And one form of tariff arbitrage is probably simply these firms shipping product out of their Southeast Asian subsidiaries rather than directly from the mainland. The second kind of activity is something like straight trans shipping. So the Chinese firms export to friendly Vietnamese partners, business partners who then slap a made in Vietnam label on the products and ship them onto the US. Strictly speaking, that's illegal. Um, and there has been, you can read a, a ton of anecdotes of the Vietnamese authorities trying to crack down on it, but it's certainly happening. Um, and then finally, there is going to be something that looks more like a real supply chain in which Vietnamese and firms in, in Thailand, uh, Cambodia too, it's a much smaller economy, of course, um, 
in which these Vietnamese firms buy Chinese components, they assemble them, perhaps they add some additional value add, and then they export them. Uh, what we don't know is the relative proportion of each of these activities. What we do know is that Chinese firms continue to benefit from all three of them. Now, the reports you publish for Gavakal Dragonomics are, are largely free of jargon, and I enjoy reading them. But I do want to ask your opinion about a jargon word which is being used a lot in the discourse about China at the moment, and that word is friendshoring. I believe this refers to the idea that the US prefers to import goods from nations which it sees as being friendly in geopolitical terms. But what do you make of the idea of friendshoring? Mm. So the, the major challenge for friendshoring is one of scale, basically, right? So Chinese manufacturing capacity is so vast and the advantages of having all or most of the links in the supply chain within the same economy are huge. Um, no other country can replicate even a, a you know, significant fraction of what China can do. But we are seeing significant moves at the margin. Um, my colleague Tom Miller specializes in adventuring all over the world, investigating this kind of phenomenon. Uh, he wrote recently about India as the best alternative to labor-intensive smartphone assembly. Um, Apple is pushing contractors to move 10 to 15% of their capacity to India and Vietnam. And manufacturing zones along the Mexican border are booming. Um, but the question of where production of happen is happening is, is not always a valid proxy for the real question of who is doing the producing. Uh, the reality is that a significant portion of the investment in friendshoring manufacturing capacity is being led by Chinese firms to get around tariffs and benefit from market proximity. And it's hard to imagine otherwise, really. You know, the companies that are currently dominant in any given market are the ones with the expertise and the capacity to successfully expand, whether that's internally in China or into facilities elsewhere. Let's spend a moment thinking about how the Chinese see things. When Premier Li Chang met the US Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo this summer, he said, and I'll quote him, the essence of China-US economic and trade relations is mutual benefit. Politicizing and securitizing economic and trade issues not only seriously affects the relationship and mutual trust between the two countries, it also harms the interests of their businesses and peoples. That was what Li Chang said. However, the US side maintains that its goal in terms of restricting trade with China has a very specific purpose, and that's to protect national security. How do you read the situation? The definition of, of what national security encompasses has ballooned, um, if you'll excuse the pun, in both the US and China. Um, Arkansas State uh, just ordered um, the Chinese-owned Swiss-based agricultural company Syngenta to sell um, 1,500 acres of land in the state for vague national security reasons. Um, they uh, described, Sari Huckabee Sanders describes the uh, seeds as a dual-use technology, um, the same kind of semiconductors, right? Um, so the major difference, I think, between the Chinese and the US approach to this is not the, whether or not they both are considering national security as paramount, I think that's true for both, but that China is still trying to tell a positive story for US businesses and to encourage foreign investment on the surface while doing all kinds of things below the surface to make that make life extremely difficult for foreign firms. Um, the US, on the other hand, talks an extremely hawkish game in public about constraining Chinese access to key technologies, 
whilst handing out delays and exceptions to companies who still want to sell into the Chinese market. So both sides have this uncomfortable balance. Um, national security is going to continue to be extremely important for both sides, but you can't necessarily take what either of them are saying in public as representative of what's actually happening on the ground. Let me finish by asking you about one particular area in which China's doing extremely well around the world at the moment, electric vehicles or EVs. Do you think that China could crack the US market in that area? So Chinese automakers are going to have a much harder job in, in the US than in Europe. Um, US firms are further along in bringing their own EVs to market. Um, policymakers have been attempting to load the dice strongly in favor of domestic manufacture. There is a 50% domestic content requirement in, uh, in order to qualify for the US EV tax credit, which will rise to 100% by 2029. That content requirement specifies North America rather than the US though. And so already about 10% of passenger vehicles sold in Mexico are Chinese. Um, as Chinese firms scale up production in Mexico, the huge market across the border is going to look extremely attractive. Um, but to qualify for the tax credit, they're not going to be able to just ship in all the components from China and assemble them in Mexico. They will really have to build up a supply chain there. So it's more of a medium term project than something we're going to see happening you know, next year or the year after. Of course, they could just completely disregard the tax credit and sell at a low enough price point vehicles are attractive to US buyers even without it. There are certainly lots of cheap Chinese EVs that, that would qualify, and those are the kind that have been uh, exported very significantly around the world over the last year or so. The issue there is that they tend to be significantly smaller and have a lot more limited range, um, something that works fine in Europe and in a lot of developing countries, but probably is not going to cut the mustard for US consumers. Well, thank you, Thomas, for your guidance there. I rather wish, actually, I could turn to you for advice all the time when I'm thinking about how to teach issues relating to China's uh, relationships with other countries. That was Thomas Gatley, China strategist at Gavacol Dragonomics on the line from Portland, Oregon in the United States. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute in London, and you can find out more about us on our website, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.